Hey there, it's Nate Kern. I'm here with Andy Dukes on Ride and Talk as the official North American brand ambassador and factory test rider. Greetings all. Here's a podcast for racing enthusiasts, motorsport fans, double R owners, and anyone else who loves a good BMW story told by somebody as passionate as Nate Kern. In today's episode, we cover the original Boxer Cup, endurance racing, the development of the S1000RR, the R9T, the fears, doubts, rewards and determination needed to make it in international racing, and much, much more. Let's get started. Nate Kern, this podcast's been nearly 20 years in the making, because that's about how long our paths have been crossing. It's great to finally have you on Ride and Talk, mate. Uh, thank you very much. This is uh, it's an honour. So, to build a picture for our listeners, let's go back to the early racing days. In fact, let's go back even further. What were you doing before you were racing, and what inspired you to take the plunge? I actually was inspired by seeing these dudes at a bike night. I would drive by this bike night in Northern California, and there was just something so cool about these guys and sport bikes, and they're picking up chicks, and I was just like, I need to be a part of this group, this crew. And uh, truly, I was afraid of bikes, didn't really understand, never had ridden. Um, but I drove a manual Bronco, so I understood the fundamentals of, of uh, driving a manual transmission. So eventually, you know, I uh, stopped in at the bike night. And now I'm amongst all these beasts and all these sport bikes. And I'm like, man, this is, it was kind of an identity. I just thought it was so cool. And that's really where it all started. What about the connection to BMW bikes and when did that begin? It actually started, it, it's a funny story because a girl I dated in high school, um, when I would go over to her house, uh, I didn't realize when I was walking through the garage, I knew there were motorcycles in there, but I didn't even really look at them. I, I didn't look at, this is even before the bike night in Northern California. Um, I just remember banging my shins on what I now know as to be jugs sticking off of a boxer engine and i just remember banging my knee and my shins into this motorcycle every time i try to slide between the car and the bike to go in the house never would i ever dream that uh what i was banging my shins into would uh, eventually turn into a career now i first met you in the early days of the bmw boxer cup and that was a really special series wasn't it and it kind of put you on the map didn't it Absolutely. It was to say special is an understatement because in 2003, when the Boxer Cup was going to kick off at Daytona for the only round in the U.S., literally when I was approached again uh, by this group of guys that were part of a BMW club in southern New Jersey called the New Sweden BMW Riders and the president of the club used to race back in the day. And they just said, hey, we really want to be a part of this series. And the only way into the Boxer Cup was with a dealer sponsor. So long story short, Cherry Hill BMW Motorcycles and the New Sweden BMW riders contacted me and said, hey, we heard you had a lot of success in your first year racing in 2002. And we'd like you to represent our club in the Boxer Cup at Daytona. Superb. Now, what in your opinion is it about one make series that creates such fantastic racing? Uh, well, you know, it, it's a chance 
not to get too mushy here because it really is pretty emotional because dude i pinch myself man I, I can't even believe i'm i'm sitting here talking to you about something that i never anticipated in the first place but uh dude to grow personally and professionally is is what every racer should try uh is why every racer excuse me should try a spec series the spec racing doesn't matter what manufacturer, what what uh, model a motorcycle. When you sit there and question why and how somebody on identical machinery can be a second a lap, two seconds a lap faster, it really gets you to problem solve and start looking at the fundamentals of riding. I start watching body positions. I start watching line selections. I start watching, you know, and not just visually, but but audibly. You start hearing them pick up the throttle. And uh, in my mind, <laughs> I was like, man, how can you possibly go to the gas right there, you know? And uh, so, yeah, there's so much I can say about spec racing, and, and uh, it's, it's, it's very emotional um, because the, the action is so close. Yeah, and that's what makes it so great to watch. It really is is a leveler. That said, you you also race the R eleven hundred S and and also maybe the R twelve hundred S boxer outside of this series, pitting it against all brands of four cylinder Japanese race bikes. So you must have felt that there was a story to tell there, Nate. It really was the beginning of this this kind of uh, not sound cliche, but it's kind of like a puzzle or a painting that's coming clearer. You know, each year this this late in the game. It really started with the Boxer Cup. And, you know, when this motorcycle and, and, and brand was put into my life, again, I didn't really have a direction. I didn't have goals. I didn't have dreams, to be honest with you. If you ever said, hey, dude, you should, uh, you know, uh, consider racing a motorcycle. And, and this is, you know, from somebody that literally was so petrified, my first motorcycle, I swapped titles even up. I literally found a 92 Katana 600 in the classified ads because I wanted so badly to hang out with these dudes at the bike night and look as cool as them. That fast forward from stalling that thing like eight times in the guy's driveway, um, it came with a free helmet. So that's really, I think for some reason was, was another inspiration, but, uh, to, literally having an opportunity to ride an R1100S, which I didn't even know was at the time. I'd never ridden a BMW. The first time I ever rode a BMW was in FP1, free practice one in the Boxer Cup at Daytona. And this R1100S was actually bought off of eBay. <laughs> so, you know, it, it was just the wildest story. Um, the mechanics showed up a little late. They were half cocked because it's during bike week, you know, so um, they were struggling the next morning and everybody literally has professional teams. Um, the Boxer Cup itself to say that I was very narrow minded. I was young and I just said, ah, oh, you know, I had a lot of success in my first year racing in 02. Um, a, a, a lot, actually. It, it, it shocked me. Um, and everybody else around me, which opened up the Boxer Cup opportunity. But not to get too long-winded, dude, uh, I had the biggest uh, awakening, basically, when I saw the level of talent and the depth of talent in the field of these seemingly overweight and underpowered um, BMW motorcycles. 
Yeah, and as as well as that, you're also selected because of your success to represent the brand in the Endurance World Championship on the global stage against, you know, the top endurance outfits in the world. And these guys have got so many years of experience in manufacturer support behind them. So I can't remember the exact year, but you guys did all right, didn't you? Uh, yes, sir. It was literally, um, unfortunately, Stefan Mertens, um, who's turned out to be one of my heroes for sure. Uh, unfortunately, he got hurt in practice, um, actually preseason testing before Le Mans. And uh, when Bertie Hauser and Andreas uh, Idela, Andy, we, we, we refer to him as, said, hey, man, we'd like you to fill in as a reserve rider with uh, Thomas Hinterreiter, Marcus Barth, and uh, who was the third rider? Oh, Rico Penskoffer, of course. And man, to tell you the the emotions again and, and the lack of confidence that I had, but, but to hear that they had enough confidence in me to come over. Um, and as a reserve rider, you actually have to qualify. Um, you know, uh, it, it was really an interesting thing. And it was the first time I had ever ridden with data. It was the first time I've ever, um, you know, such an analog motorcycle seemingly, right? But that has data. And um, it was my second time to Le Mans. But to be on that stage, and again, I keep referring to just growing personally and professionally because every time these opportunities have ever happened from moment one at Daytona on the R1100S to even fast forward to 2021 you know it, it's it's so much in between has happened that uh i don't you know want to get too evangelical but there's just no coincidence man i'm thankful so just moving away from uh, boxer engines we'll be coming back to those again but when you were asked to play a part in the development of the double r back in 2008 did you realize straight away that bmw motorrad was onto something special there I actually didn't realize because, again, I was so, uh, to say narrow-minded, I was so focused on, at the time, I was chasing championships and racing full-time. And to revisit the last question, getting getting the R1100S out of the Boxer Cup Series, when it ended in November um, of 2004, I just started to really find that passion in life and started to understand the craft of riding. And I was so devastated when I heard the season, uh, the series wouldn't continue in 05 that when I got home, um, to say dedication, it wasn't even a thought. It's just, I needed to keep this, this drug going basically. And I needed to, uh, stay on this, this machine that nobody thought could be raced outside of uh, a spec series against other R1100Ss. So a local dealership in Philadelphia was inspired and we entered the bike uh, being, you know, overweight, underpowered and air and oil cooled. It's funny, the championship cup series here in the U.S. that has a regional and, and, a, and a, a, a pro classes, they said, hey, it's legal for everything. <laughs> you know, you can run it in the 600, 750, 1000. And, you know, fast forward from the analog days to the digital opportunity that was given me um, with the S1000 RR, I, I still couldn't get my head around anything that's not shaft driven and air cooled because that's all I know of BMW Motorrad. You know, we've skipped over that digital uh, question that you asked me of how I got involved with the RR, but you know, the, to come full circle back to my roots, 
when the R9T was first uh, introduced, it's obviously a naked template to be an extension of yourself. That's the way I look at it. It's such a beautiful art bike that you can turn into anything uh, you would like. And when I first saw it, though, Boxer Cup, it instantly just, wow, I, I can't even begin to tell you. I saw it on a racetrack versus a coffee shop or up in the canyons or the North Georgia mountains. So from there, um, the VP at the time knew I was inspired. He knew that was my foundation and the credibility that it's funny. Other people still try to convince me of. They're like, hey, you know, you should really pursue um, what you talked about last night at dinner, and that's building an R9T for the track. Next thing you know, dude, there's there's almost 30 of them now in the U.S. track prepped. It's unbelievable, and but but to go from how about this, Andy? To go from telelever to conventional forks, but conventional forks working with a paralever. So the bike really, I split it in half, and it has a front end feel that doesn't work with the paralever in regards to raising the uh, the motor under load, right? When you're giving it throttle, um, but the ability to also have uh, what people consider feel when the forks travel. So, man, I can get really deep into all this. I love it. Um, thank you for the opportunity. But, uh, yeah, that middle segment, the the digital side, has really been um, what's taken me from, you know, my analog roots with Motorrad uh, as a caveman. <laughs> So did you have anything to do with resurrecting the Boxer Cup Championship series that ran throughout 2019? Because it must have had something to do with your early racing efforts on the R9T of all bikes. I mean, I say of all bikes because a lot of people just don't realize, do they, just how good these can be on the track with the right preparation. Like you were saying, you know, many people only think of the 9T as a heritage style bike that looks good on the street. But it is a hell of a track tool when it's set up properly, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, The... BMW R9T racer itself, aesthetically, hands down, probably one of the most beautiful BMW motorcycles made because you get the the boxer engine with such a minimalist, you know, trellis style, you know, front and rear the uh, uh, frame. Uh, to say that that's the chassis, it's not. Obviously, we all we all know that the motor is the chassis, you know. So, um, but to get the beautiful lines of the fairing into the flowing tank into the little cafe tail, but one of them is uh, pretty sexy, but dude, when you put 25 of them together, it's just such a sight, but the sound. There's one thing that that so many spectators um, were fortunate enough back in 2003 and four when I was running, but also 2019 basically happened because the proprietary, um, and this is verbiage from others, not, not me. Um, they just said, dude, proprietarily, what you did taking the R9T and showing that the DNA is still there, that it does have performance, um, did inspire uh, one of the former Germans that was at Motorrad Motorsports. When I was asked to stop by his little cubicle um, in Munich, he's, I, I figured we were going to talk HP4 race because at the time that was in development and I was fortunate enough to, to be a part of that a little bit. Um, he said, tell me about your boxer racing. And I'm like, really? He said, yeah. How did you prepare and how did you do this, this, and this? So fast forward, dude, next thing you know, they announced Boxer Cup 2.0 is what they wanted to call it. And then uh, 
you know, the way that it was advertised and the way that it needed to kind of gain its feet, um, it was going to be obviously just staying in Europe. Um, there are quite a few R9T racers uh, sitting around, and it wasn't due to being aesthetically unpleasing. It's just uh, I feel that, that the racer not having uh, the ability to change the clip-ons, they were fixed into the top triple tree. Um, and a long gas tank, which is kind of cafe style, right? Uh, it, it alienated some of the inseam challenge, <laughs> but, uh, but man, the, the boxer cup in 2019, hands down, truly, I think the greatest chapter of, of, of my life. Yeah. And you, I mean, you finished runner up in that championship on that Wunderlich <laughs> oh, motorsports racer. So I guess you had unfinished business for 2020 before the world changed forever and COVID struck. So are there any plans to go for glory again? I would like to say yes, just because there's unfinished business. Um, unfortunately, we can't control, you know, what, what COVID did globally. Um, but what we can control, and this is something uh, I never, I didn't anticipate you asking this question. It's It's been a thought of mine for a long time because in 2009, Motor on Motorsports, uh, October of 08, there was a Pirelli tire test at Daytona. I got the guys set up, um, Hinterrider, myself, uh, they shipped over a couple bikes, got some uh, testing done, and fast forward to March of, of uh, 09, four factory prepared BMW HP2 Sports were flown over, 20 mechanics. It was just the dream of all dreams at the time. To I never thought I'd run the Daytona 200, especially not on a factory prepared bike with factory techs. And to be honest with you, Andy, um, pretty upset because uh, Mini Cooper, right? Richard Cooper, uh, who's just extremely talented and fast. He was built for Daytona because in full gear, he might've been 130 pounds, <laughs> you know, wet, wet. Correct. And, uh, so Brian Perriott, who I give a lot of credit to, he taught me so much about how to ride these motorcycles, uh, inadvertently. I know he didn't want to, but, uh, I was very observant and, and, uh, watched. And then naturally the, the other, the other racers, um, you know, that were there long story short, man, I just, have unfinished business because morning warm up there were sustained 25 mile an hour gusts of wind. I mean, we had one recorded up upwards of 40 and Daytona wind, yada, yada. All I can say is that, uh, the perfect wind just came underneath that at max lean angle and, and the, uh, East horseshoe. And it was just enough to unload the rear and spin up more than it usually did. And, um, the bike, uh, ended up, going on its own ghost riding itself down to the turn four dog leg. And I finally just let go, you know, cause it spit me up uh, onto the windshield and couldn't get, I couldn't recover. So I busted my wrist and that was the hardest, hardest, uh, decision I ever had to make. Um, was I got, you know, shot up by Dr. Toda, um, to get my, my wrist in my hand and everything to feel the best it possibly could. I did the warm up lap. I could not feel the brakes or the throttle. And it was the worst feeling in the world. I I literally said, "How bad are you going to feel when you take out half the field in a turn one?" Because I could not, I couldn't tell how much break I was giving it. And uh, when I looked at the Germans on the wall, and they all looked at me, and I just shook my head and went behind the wall. It was it, even now still pretty emotional. So, what I would like to do 
um, guerrilla style and, and again, proprietary. Uh, you know, I'd rather su- the support come the way it, it did in the beginning, and it wasn't through uh, Motorrad and Motorrad USA in regards to my boxer efforts. Because, um, you know, my bread and butter is definitely the digital side, the double R and the new M. But I would like to race the Daytona 200 in 2022 on an R9T. Just to untie that knot in my stomach. <laughs> wow. Watch this space. Yeah. Yeah. Just so you can move on with your life. Yeah, absolutely. Just one more question on boxer engines, if I may, because you pushed your teammate Christoph Hofer all the way in that 2019 series on the R9T racer. <laughs> of all the guys you've raced against in all formats, who would you say was your toughest opponent, Nate? Believe it or not, it was actually my teammate. It, it was uh, it was Perriot. Even though I wasn't ever able to be in a position to beat him fair and square because he was just so unbelievably talented and no concessions. Not that I was that new into the sport, but I was. I mean, I didn't do my first race till I was 24. And, and uh, um, considering the levels I've been fortunate enough to compete at, there's you know guys that uh, learn the craft very early. Christoph Hoffer definitely was a was a, a good challenge because it's funny he knew the tracks I'd never seen any of the six tracks, but I knew the bike. And being you know a young head versus I'm an old head now, it's amazing. You know I was I was referred to as the old fat American. Like who's this dude coming you know to Lausitz ring? Never seeing the track before, and uh, I I you know we're guys right? We size each other up, and uh, I knew that he had won a super stock you know, uh, 1,000cc championship at a pretty decent level within IDM, I think a year or two before. But the point is, I could just tell, yeah, he was young and his perspectives uh, were a lot like mine at 24, 25. But I said, whatever he does, I'm going to do because it's just another piece of asphalt. And I understand the the fundamentals and the craft of riding at speed. So um, the crazy thing is... (laughs) With three minutes to go, if you don't mind me sharing, with three minutes to go in Q2 at Lausitz Ring, um, I was dying, man. The The opportunity to race for Wunderlich Motorsports came together pretty late, and uh, that's a story within itself on how it came together. And um, I just, I pulled in down pit lane, I saw there's three minutes left, and dude, I can't breathe, man. My, I'm like 180 beats a minute, man. I'm out of shape, and and... Sebastian, the great, great technician, he came over and he, and I said, where am I at? He's like, you're P2 by 0.2. And I'm like, ugh. And I started running a press release through my head, <laughs> you know, front row start first time there. And I started to look to the left, uh, to exit pit lane. And again, those fears came back from Daytona in, in 09. And I said, how many more opportunities will I ever have to do this? I looked up pit lane and I just got my breathing under control. I shut my visor, and I did about a 75% pace and really put it together um, up top, you know, mentally versus just fortitude down below. And I talked to myself. I said, if I can get on and off this straightaway as fast as I've gone in the past two days uh, or a day or so that I was there, I'm going to keep going. Because you know when you ruin a corner, you're done, especially being point two. And you know what? We ended up qualifying on the pole by 
Fantastic. <laughs> and when I saw 50 and his boys get together and kind of come apart, they're like, oh, you know, they had a little crying with all their buddies with man buns and shit. And, you know, they got in this little circle and they were like, we can't believe this. And that was it. When I saw what rattled him and that was me being <laughs> successful and him not being the man. Um, yeah, dude, I turned it up. But, uh, you know, he ended up winning both races. Um, we had a little blue flag incident. A rider didn't didn't potentially move over, which honestly inspired me to help. You know, the way people helped me, Andy, I, I wanted to help the other racers in the series, which is kind of a paradox. It's, it's a race series, right? But they were so far off the pace, some of them, that I wanted the series to be better. So I actually started mentoring some of the other riders on how to race a boxer. Yeah, well, helping something that you've always been very, very good at and something that's passionate to you. I mean, I think, I think you know, again, moving on to the digital side, I think it was back in 2012 that you came up with an idea for Double R owners to come together and share their passion for their bike. So what was the thinking behind your Double R Fest? The thinking behind that, Andy, was I've never been, uh, if there's only one thing that, that I think Motorrad actually truly only holds against me um, season after season, and that is I have a tough time with social media, and, and uh, it's like I'm right on the edge of being old school. I understand the, the necessary evil, um, but I will say that when I started to see so much misinformation on the internet about such a, a you know, uh, a segment of motorcycle that we'd never been a part of. And we, we rewrote the leader bike segment period when we were the first to, um, the road with traction control, right. Um, with shift assist with ABS, uh, race ABS. So from there, having been brought into the project by, by Yosef Mackler, uh, affectionately referred to as SEP, and uh, Rudy Schneider, just amazing group of guys that brought me in in 2008 when I just was like, what's this? Because boxers for life and racing for life. And they're like, no, dumbass, you're not going to race forever. And we see something in you. Um, and when they started to bring me into the project, they referred to me as the pillar, right? Uh, for the U.S. market. And they really nurtured and mentored me. So I wanted to give back to the largest sport market in the world. Um, naturally, it was the number one selling sport bike due to all the safety aspects uh, through technology. So in 2012, my home track in Savannah, Georgia, Roebling Road Raceway, um, I just reached out to a bunch of double R owners and said, hey, would you guys actually like to, you know, um, really have the, the platform simplified and enjoy, you know, not just the track and the paddock together, but breaking bread together and really um, creating a lifestyle. And it almost took a, a, a page from another manufacturer's playbook that does an amazing job. I, I sat back and watched how, um, you know, they would retain customers through lifestyle events. And I said, man, why can't we do that? So I wanted to create a culture that was that was more than just performance based, right? If that makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, one hundred percent. And and you've done eight or maybe nine of them now. So what kind of feedback are you getting from riders in terms of what they've learned about their bike and their own ability as a rider with the right training? 
because these things that you need training to ride them properly, don't you? They're serious spikes. Uh, you do, but I, I'd say 75% of the training is before you put your helmet on. I truly believe that. I feel that minimizing the multitasking by, by through comprehension and naturally fear is induced by lack of comprehension. And when I can get somebody to understand why and how we developed the, at the time, five-axis lean angle sensor, uh, now it's a six-axis, but to simplify all that really bougie, fancy talk, right, into how it's um, usable for the average rider in the real world, uh, obviously in a controlled environment, that's where the 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 germans i think they did actually they did say it. they're like hey uh you know they said you're not just a dumbass racer you actually know how to articulate our product and i didn't know how to respond to that it was kind of an offhanded compliment but uh with that being said to be able to simplify again um, based off of skill set and environment and show the versatility of the double R in each mode at what predetermined degree of lean the DTC activates and why, you know, in rain mode, um, your first layer insurance, honestly, is throttle response. So from there, to break down each mode and to, to really start to tailor each generation's versatility, especially with the, the, the new one, oh my goodness, I can't even begin to tell you. I'm getting, yeah, I'm finally, yeah, okay, I can accept I'm getting older and fatter, right? But the bikes keep getting lighter and more powerful and easier to ride. And the crazy thing is, the lap record that I held uh, for a while at my home track for, for quite a few seasons, I can still turn within a second, I think I'm right at about 1 to 1.2 off of that pace, but with 80, 85% effort. That's incredible. Because I understand how and why um, great cause and effects on how the electronics are going to activate and deactivate and how I can now fine tune them, not just based off of my skill set, but again, environment, how things change. So I like to, there you go. I like to relay all that information, dude. And it's just doing, being able to do it in a way that, uh, you know, your, your average, well, I shouldn't say your average Joe, but being able to do it in a way that a, a double R owner can understand how to get the best out of their bikes without getting themselves into trouble and understanding how all of these i'll call it safety aids but it's a lot more than that how all of these technically advanced features are there to make the ride experience better and safer as a result yes sir and and really when you start looking back at pp1 which was pre-production one pp2 um and being involved in the world launch in in november of 2009 at Portimao. Um, it was four waves of press, so four weeks, uh, 166 journalists. And we, you and I both know, uh, I've seen some, some pretty Gucci helmets and leathers, right? And amazing editorial skills, but you know, the writing uh, didn't keep up at times <laughs> with, with that. And the beauty of it is, their minds were blown as long as they've been in the industry. They're like, wait a minute, we can't even get our head around all this groundbreaking technology. And I'm far from an engineer. I mean, dude, I, I'm, I'm, in a way, I'm glad I'm not because, you know, there's a lot of social inadequacies that come along with brilliance, right? And these dudes, yeah, you know, in broken English and being brilliant, had a, had a, they would, it's funny because they would look over at me and say, Nate, get over here, explain this, <laughs> you know? And again, it, it, it it's a reoccurring theme. I, I started to find 
um, you know, purpose and, 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 and goals and direction that I, I, I just didn't have in earlier stages in life. So with that being said, man, I can't say enough about how we went from, let's just say intrusion and in the first generation WR of electronic support to years of just data and now being able to um, make the power more progressive, but allowing the electronics to still have some feedback some feedback to let you know that they're active um, versus just a visual on the dash. And it, it's just such a fine line now between, um, you know, we've proven that we can make things very light and powerful with the HP4 race, but we need to keep them rideable. And that's the number one aspect of the double R. Um, I have to ride everything else, obviously, that, that uh, we compete against, you know, to, uh, um, and think about it. It's easy to find weaknesses, right? It's hard to find strength. So when we spend time really seeing, um, you know, how the industry has some strong points in development, I, I just know that we haven't lost that uh, confidence-inspiring feel that the double R um, gives. And usually confidence comes from stability, right? But it's hard to have stability and flickability in the same sentence. It's hard to get both. Um, but I, I just can't say enough about uh, riders getting into double R's, which are their, I, I hear them um, through so many social media messages on two different channels, private messages saying, man, I finally got my first double R and it's a model year 15. I said, good for you, dude. That third gen, um, you're getting the shift assist now, uh, both directions. And, you know, it, it's not an iPhone 5, really. You know, it's like it may be a, a 6, you know, but but the beauty of it is, they now had that goal that they've been saving. Um, and I just wanted a double R because of what you said five years ago, four years ago, three years ago. And go figure. It, it, so there you go, man. It's very, it is, again, um, super exciting to think that that from banging my shins, you know, on a, on a, on a, a valve cover to boxer cup, to bring brought into this uh, little little warehouse, man. I think people, Andy, feel that when you start talking digital and double R, it's like this white laboratory, right? With bright lights and perfect this and that. And dude... It's real enthusiasts. No, man. It was actually iron gates and like a brick building and very, really cool old rustic looking. And we walk in and in the back corner of this room... Um, I just see this shape underneath, this very edgy shape underneath this sheet. And that was my first introduction to the double R at the end of 08. And uh, actually, yeah, sometime in 08. And when when the sheet came off, wow, my mind was blown. I can believe it. And, and that's amazing, isn't it? You know, that was 2008. We're now in 2021. The years go by. We get older and fatter, as you say. But, you know, we're in 2021. We've got an M1000 double R now. Just how good is is a bike like that compared to the the early ones man you're trying to touch all my buttons today dude like it, it's funny that again you ask this question and andy i'm telling you man the s1000 double r has dominated every discipline of the leader bike segment for a decade right so how can we make something even better and that the, the main goal was minimum one second a lap faster, right? 
And that was going from the K67. So going from the latest generation double R over the K46, which was the third generation. So updated chassis, motor, uh, swing arm, you name it. But now that we took that same thing and said, well, how can we make the M1000 double R one second a lap faster than the current generation S1000? And it really is to me, um, in regards to one aspect of the, of the motorcycle conventional suspension, it really is track oriented because we've been so spoiled with DDC for years. The DDC, the dynamic dampening control has gotten so good that, you know, I drive all over the country supporting dealers, trying to, you know, the three eyes and, and, and sight, inspire and form. Right. And the investment that Motorod's made in me has allowed me to go around and really share with riders at the track, at bike nights, dealer events. The DDC, man, is worth every penny if you're riding in the real world, you know, 90 plus percent of the time, right? But to have this conventional suspension that I haven't been on in forever, it feels like, especially on the on real roads, um, it definitely lets you know it's a track-oriented bike. But that's the only aspect that I can say, um, man, I kind of miss the DDC. But in every other way, all the invisible geometry that's been put into it, the 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 gorgeous man, the Gillies tooling triples, um, the offsets, the steering head angles, uh, all the things that that again you can't see. There's a lot of magic, but what you can see with the uh, the wings—that's the first thing people go to. Um, the amount of downforce it generates, it literally, before it ever wants to um, go sideways or skywards, it wants to go forwards. And that's a, that's how you win races, you know. So uh, rear tire lasts twice as long, if you ask me, due to the linkage and the whole geometry in the rear of the M. Um, lengthening it, 15 mil definitely gives it more stability with all the power. It spins up a lot quicker uh, with all the really... Um, fun internals, you know, with the titanium pinnacle connecting rods, the two ring, uh, forged race pistons, yada, yada. So man, you, you, again, you're getting me all excited, dude. (laughs) Is it wasted (laughs) on the road, on the street? I mean, you know, is a bike like It's definitely not. Okay. It's not. Explain. With the push of a button, because you still have rain, road, dynamic, and race. And that's why, I'm, again, I'm so proud of representing a brand that wants to grow the riding community by keeping riders off the ground, you know. And rain mode is still so unbelievably acute to, again, throttle response. And then having that ability from 0 to 37 degree lean, monitoring, waiting for inconsistencies in the wheel speed sensors. And when it doesn't sense any, at 38 degree lean, the, the DTC activates so you can have the Gucci embadging, all the Gucci hard parts. You can have this amazing true M underneath you, which I've been fortunate enough to drive, um, you know, M sport package uh, cars from the car side and an actual M. There is a difference and uh, it's, it, it truly is performance. End of story. It's all performance oriented. It's not creature comforts of the DEC. Um, even the seat itself, the M seat, uh, for real world riding every day, it looks good to have that, that little emblem on there. Right. But it's 20 mil higher. The foam is a lot stiffer and it all has, uh, every form has a function. Um, 
so for real world riding, uh, I actually I actually get the regular uh, S seat S one thousand seat and put it on the M <laughs> for comfort. Um, but for the track, you definitely need all the reasons why uh, the M seat was developed. Um, but yeah, it's cheating, man. Rain mode is so cheating. Road mode, uh, and then from there the best part of a controlled environment, hopefully when people go into the pro riding modes is being able to a la carte three menus based off of, again, your skill set, your, uh, environment and, uh, three levels of engine braking, four levels of wheelie control. It's all that stuff comes into play and you just can't stop smiling. I mean, uh, hopefully you ride to, you know, to add, uh, you know, life to your days, not days to your life. Right. Yeah, but just to sort of give some context for that, I'm just trying to sort of put this in perspective of a guy who saved so much money, he's absolutely desperate for a bike like this. He's been doing track days for a few years, so he's he's in, shall we say, the advanced group. Could he take a bike like the M and with the right instruction and with the, the, with the right level of understanding and acceptance actually develop his skills over the next sort of four or five years because of that bike? And what it allows him to do? Absolutely. This is the first uh, track setup uh, motorcycle that I that I know that we've from uh, the foundation set up for the track. So that to me, um, there's such a, a baseline, you know, um, foundation with this M1000 double R that out of the box we really figured out um obviously different ballast points there's different size test riders there's different you know styles of riding but we morphed it into one machine that truly out of the box is so purpose-built for the track that from there if it's doing everything you really need it to do within your skill set uh let's say within 85 90 percent then you really have the ability to get your learning curve to be steeper but safer with the pro riding modes. So when you a la carte the menu and say, hey, you know, I don't have a lot of feel for the side, a big lean angle, the small part of the tire um, with the, the throttle. Okay, but I want to fill my cup and have that, that nice loft of the front wheel, but not too much. I don't want to over-rotate. There's so much ability to dial all that in. <laughs> and as we change... Uh, throughout the day, right? Um, you ate right, you slept right, you're feeling good, tires are good. But as things change throughout the day, to have that ability to reach over on the left to control switch and and uh, be able to adjust those f- fine, you know, um, I call them, you know, it's insurance, you know, the, the values of traction control. That rider definitely will have the ability to have a steeper learning curve, safer. Understood, yeah. And, and that's what it's all about. Absolutely. Now, You've given so much to racing and building the BMW community over the years. And right from the early days, I got the impression that you were flying the flag for BMW owners. So is it something that's within you, you know, like a real desire to grow this community? It absolutely is. You're right, Andy. It, uh, the BMW motorcycle did, again, so much for my life. Um, not to sound too redundant, but it gave me a direction and I wanted to really share with people what the motorcycle has done for me personally, but not just professionally. So to be able to share the lifestyle um, and not just always the technology, obviously it speaks for itself in regards to the rideability, but 
to be able to share the passion um, with other riders, and I know we talk a lot about non BMW riders being referred to as conquest at the corporate level, but I never uh, made a point to go out and say, "Hey, you know, let me tell you why I love my motorcycle so much." I just tried to to live it and not be it, you know. And uh, it's awesome to see so many riders across the country, and uh, our country's so big that obviously there's there's even different cultural differences, and the the common denominator is. The BMW motorcycle, man. It's so awesome to go all four points of the uh, corners of the country to the middle of the country. And no matter where I am supporting a, a race weekend, a track day, a dealer event, these motorcycles uh, have enhanced so many lives, not just outside of the helmet, but once we get to ride together too, uh, to, to watch these riders of different skill sets be able to uh, look cool right? Because that's a motivating factor. We're humans, right? We want to look cool. We want that round L. We want that M emblem, but at what risk? And that's where my passion really came from, uh, showing riders that think I'm so unbelievably talented. To be honest with you, I have to work harder than others, you know, I, I at the racing level. And how that trickles down to layman's terms is me sharing with them what the BMW motorcycle does for me personally to keep me safer and uh it, but still fill your cup still have fun and not have so much uh uh support if you want to call it that you know that's that's a little bit of a debate that people like to say ah it's 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 too digital it's actually not good stuff now i wonder how many riders of other brands are now riding bmw bugs because of chats they've had with you nate at dealers shows exhibitions racetracks or even online i'm thinking you've probably sold a few bikes in your time eh uh you know definitely if i was better at at quantifying um uh especially for for the folks up top that that need to also uh quantify things you know each each year, I try to do something better. I don't like to say what I said in 2012 because the motorcycles have changed, um, and they've changed for me too. They, they've enhanced riding by by having so much more, uh, again, versatility. But when you start getting riders in New York, in Los Angeles, Chicago, Dallas, you name it, all over the country, riders <laughs> come up to me each year that we've had it and say, Hey man, remember me? Absolutely. I definitely remember you. I remember your passion. That's one thing I remember the most is in how animated and they're like, well, you actually talked me into a single R, you know, um, in 2016 and, but you sold me a double R in 2010. So it's amazing to see how many generations of, of multiple BMWs these, these folks have owned, um, guys and gals. It's awesome to just see, each city to revisit uh, friends, if you want to call it that, and and put a, a a face with the name from social media, and from there, again, if I could track the last seven digits of VIN numbers nationwide, um, which uh, it, it, it's it's easier said than done, right? Um, it's just awesome. It, it, the dealers, especially the dealers, get. Um, whether it's dealer staff that I am able to educate and inspire at, at an IMS show or their customers 
um, at a track or at a at a uh, bike night, they come back to the dealer and just say, "Oh well, man, you know they have this newfound passion." And there you go, mission accomplished. I want them to see why I love it so much. Exactly. So, what do you want your legacy to be in motorcycling terms, then, Nate? Oh. <laughs> you know, I I just have these. <laughs> I just, I have these complexes, man. It's like, you know, I was raised on a simple philosophy, which a lot of people think it's pretty brutal (laughs) when I say this, but we're all equally worthless, man. Like I treat everybody the same, whether you're multi-time world champion or it's your first time ever riding a motorcycle. So, you know, that's, I think the legacy, I I want people to see that, uh, you know, I, I, I really don't have different, uh, in a way, conversations, if that makes sense. Like, I, I, I just want to, I want people to know that that I genuinely um, am doing what I'm doing due to the fact that this brand has come into my life and changed so many things. Uh, but really, based off of just how good the motorcycles are, it's really hard to, to, to be authentic, right? If you really don't believe in something. And you know, I keep referencing the personal and professional growth and, and personally, I mean, shoot, I just went, I had to get some miles on a a new M 1000 double R before we can put it on the track. Tough job. Well, especially the North Georgia mountains, beautiful here. It's the bottom of the Appalachians and, uh, the roads are unbelievable. The, the, the views are unbelievable for the East coast. I'll tell you the M really put, uh, uh, lit that fire even more it's just such an enjoyable motorcycle to even ride on the roads um yeah part of it uh no no definitely no ego involved but man when you start rolling in to these uh you know uh pretty hoity-toity areas of of uh, north of atlanta and and people know what it is they can identify with the emblem and car guys especially and they're like "Ooh, that's an m but they've never said that about the s when i was riding it you know, so, so yeah, it's really exciting to the, 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 the new conversations with each model, you know, um, the R9Ts brought up amazing conversations and I, and I'll leave it at that, man. The, the legacy really, uh, I, I hope is, is defined by, um, how much I, I want to share with the riding community that these motorcycles can, um, enhance lives you know and can uh make it not just enhance lives uh, emotionally but but uh safely <laughs> mm, yeah agreed so finally nate what are you most grateful of dude um oh, that's like a a roulette wheel of gratefulness i mean wherever it lands like you don't know where it's gonna land holy shit man um I'm really the most uh, grateful of finding something that I haven't quit at. You know, it's yeah. You were saying that to me yesterday, actually. Yeah, it's yeah, a big thing in your life, isn't it, it? It really is because no matter how much ability um, I, I might think or or know I have, um, if if it isn't. Uh, if the confidence isn't there or if the, the support, I mean, you know, not, not to get, uh, again, too much into the past, but, you know, I didn't grow up the most traditional, uh, way family wise. And when the BMW was put into my life, I'm so grateful for the amount of, uh, riders that have, you know, given me that pat on the back that I never had growing up. Right. And to, to actually really, um, see 
the difference that we make in each other's lives all over the world. I mean, not just in Georgia, not just in California. Not I mean, it's amazing the amount of people that I've met. So I'm grateful for the amount of people that I've met and have inspired me or I've inspired them. It's just such a, a mutual ball of, of, of awesomeness, <laughs> gratefulness, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people, people talk about a GS family, but within motorsport, there's very much uh, a BMW motorhead family, isn't there? It, it really is because, uh, again, we might have different perspectives and views of, of, of the world and how we dress. And, you know, I mean, it's amazing if you want to nitpick all the different little things. But the but the the glue is the motorcycle, the BMW motorcycle and the feel that it all gives us from the pulses of, uh, you know, two 600 cc pistons, you know, firing at each other um, and the boxer to um, the stability uh, with so much power in the double R, but, but confidence inspiring, you know, when, when it doesn't get schizophrenic and, and, uh, uh, you know, in regards to the double R, there's still so much, uh, rideability there that it does have, um, soul. You know, a lot of people think that liquid cooled and four cylinders, there's no soul like an air cooled. I hear it all the time. I hear it from the old heads, the new heads, you name it, man, nationwide. But when you really get down to what makes us want to throw our leg over the BMW motorcycle, there's so many different options. And uh, I'll give you a best example. I actually rode an F900R for the first time. Man, what a cool uh, firing order in, in regards to a parallel twin. I've never really ridden a parallel twin. And the pulses, though, the sound that that thing makes, but the best of both worlds, actually has the bottom end and the top end. It's got a nice mix, um, but the sound is unreal. So it has a very semi-digital you know, feel and support with the fly-by-wire, with the, you know, with the electronics. But, man, it there's something still kind of boxerish about it like it, it's a really neat balance but i don't think it gets the the credit just like the single r a lot of naked bikes in the u.s don't ever get um you know the love that they should <laughs> bmw motorhead is well known for technology but a lot of people do not get the passion as well and, and one of the things that i love about this brand is the sheer amount of passion from those working directly for the company i mean these people they seem to live and breathe bmw bikes especially our friends in germany right Andy, it's it's not just uh, not just the Germans. You know, when I have a chance to do uh, press launches or tests, or, or you know, a lot of it's obviously Portugal and Spain. But traveling around Europe during the Boxer Cup in 2019, um, uh, obviously the one and only time I've been to uh, your country. You know, uh, to see for sure how even the motorrad employees of different motorrads around the world are so passionate for their jobs. And, uh, but yeah, I've watched, I've watched how people pull into the, uh, parking garages in Munich and, and damn it, man, if they're not excited to show up and, and move the needle. And I've sat in some, some pretty heated, uh, uh, meetings too, where it's like, dude, if you said that in the U S we, we'd probably go outside, but you know, the way the Germans will, will say things to each other, it, it really, um, if there's any red flag, it's based off of, uh, in conversation, it's based off of passion. And I've seen a dude sit right, right across the table and say, okay, fair enough. 
and let's move on. And that's the beauty of it. They just get stuff done. And, uh, you know, you know what you're getting, <laughs> you know, so. And what stuff it is. That's brilliant. Nate, that's all we got time for today. But it's been a real blast chatting with you. BMW Motrad is really lucky to have you as an ambassador. And it's great to see you reaping the rewards of all your hard work and dedication. Keep up the great work, mate. Thank you. Thanks, Nate. You've done so much for the brand, but it is great to see they've still got unfinished business. Daytona 222 on an R9T. I'll hold you to that. And thanks for your clear explanations on some of the technology discussed today. you clearly got a gift for explaining these things, such as how to make a superbike rideable for us mere mortals. Anyway, I enjoyed the chat immensely, and I'm looking forward to sharing a beer with you in person sometime soon. That's it for today, folks. Hope you enjoyed hearing the passion from Nate and hope to welcome you back for the next episode soon. Bye for now.